All who fear the Lord will hate evil. That is why I hate pride, arrogance, corruption, and perverted speech. Good advice and success belong to me. Insight and strength are mine. Because of me, kings reign and rulers make just laws. Rulers lead with my help and nobles make righteous judgments. I love all who love me. Those who search for me will surely find me. My child, listen to me and treasure my instructions. Tune your ears to wisdom and concentrate on understanding. Cry out for insight and understanding. Search for them as you would for lost money or hidden treasure. Then you will understand what it means to fear the Lord, and you will gain knowledge of God. For the Lord grants wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He grants a treasure of good sense to the godly. He is their shield, protecting those who walk with integrity. He guards the paths of justice and protects those who are faithful to him. The word of the Lord. Good morning. Uh, It's so good to see everyone. For those of you that don't know me, there's some new faces. I'm Barry. I am one of the elders here at Cornerstone. And on occasion, I uh, have the privilege and pleasure of of sharing the word. And today's one of those chances for me. It's been a while, and I'm really looking forward to it. So, um, yeah, thank you all for for being here and looking forward to this time. Um, I don't know if you all noticed that there was a song playing as we were greeting each other. Um, It's interesting. We're going to talk about it a little bit, but an interesting song. Um, And Tim, thank you for reading from Proverbs. Uh, As I envisioned this a little bit, that song was sort of, if if you've been to like Vesper services and and you've experienced the anti-communion and the communion that we do, I kind of envisioned that. And it was interesting to see um, the interaction of people. Um, And there's nothing in that, but it, it's interesting. We'll, we'll talk about it a little bit. But uh, for the last few weeks, for the last few weeks, you know, we have been studying the book of James, and we have been uh, primarily in James chapter 1. Uh, but we are going to be exploring the book of James. We're going to be uh, exploring after James, I believe, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And, and it's, this has been an exciting time. James is, is a rich, rich, full book of really great stuff. And for the last few weeks, you've gotten to hear from Jay and you got to hear from Justin, an explanation of what the book of James is all about. And I'm just going to give a little recap, just to kind of set us where we are right now. We know that James was the first book of the New Testament that was written. This was the first one. Before any of the Gospels came about, the book of James was written. And we know that it was written by James, uh, which is really weird, but it was written by James. And, and as far as we can tell, James, the James that wrote the book, was the James, the brother of Jesus. So Joseph and Mary, Jesus, James, family, uh, that James, the brother of Jesus. James writes this book to the church, although at the time there was not a church, as far as we know it. These were mostly Jews. These were Jews that had, had obeyed the law. They had observed the commandments uh, they had, they, they knew the teachings of Moses. And, and as far as they were concerned, Jesus Christ was the Messiah that fulfilled the law and the prophets, all that stuff. So these were Jews living their Jewish life, but living a fulfilled, redeemed Jewish life through the person of Jesus Christ. What we now know as the church. And James was delivering his message, the book of James, to this group of people that we now know as the church. And James's heart was one that he was desiring to see a house of worship restored of God. So a, a, a house that worships God. This has been the desire of the Jews from the very beginning. That God would find a place where he could be worshipped. That's what the temple was about. That's what the tabernacle was about. So James is a Christian, but he's a Jew and he's writing this book to the church that is at this point scattered all over. 
Um, as Justin shared with us, the book of James can be one of those books that I think he called it a face punch. Like James can feel like a punch to the face sometimes because James doesn't pull punches. James tells it like it is. He observes what he sees in the church. He sees sin in the camp. He sees the way that the church is right now and he speaks truth and he says it like it is. And, uh, and so a lot of times the book of James can feel like that. It can feel really harsh because James just, uh, he just speaks the truth and he's bold about it. Um, as, as, uh, as Justin and, and Jay had mentioned, you know, the, the temptation when we read James, because it is so, it is so kind of in our face about how we're living, the, the, uh, the temptation with James is to balance it out with the writings of Paul. Because when we read Paul, we see Paul is always talking about his grace and sonship and, and the adoption of the Father, right? And James doesn't really talk about that. I mean, in the book of James, you won't even really see discussions of the love of God. But this is James telling Christians, telling these people how they should live and how their faith should be made real through the things that we do. And, and for a lot of us, and we've got a lot of church backgrounds here. I came from a church background. All of you came from some background. Maybe it was in the church, maybe it wasn't. But we all have some backgrounds that, that we want to balance this because we read what James is saying, but we know what Paul said as well. Uh, we are not going to balance what these two men have said. These two men don't need to be balanced. The writings of these two do not need to be balanced. They are complementary to each other. They are serving and worshiping the same God and, and, and glorifying the same Lord Jesus. They're just saying it in very different ways that are all good for the church. Um, today's message is, um, we're, we're going to look at one facet. I, I think of the book of James as like, a, as like a diamond. You know, when you turn that diamond, there's so many facets to it. There's so many ways to look at it. And, and, the, and the first chapter of James is like a great, um, even like microcosm of even that larger thing. The first chapter of James is a rich chapter full of lots of stuff. And that's why for three weeks we've been here. And we're going to be here, I think, for another week after that. We're going to camp out in James chapter 1 because it is so rich with these things, of these very facets that we can look at uh, to see great things. Today's message is about wisdom because James talks about wisdom, right? Um, so wisdom is, that, is, is the way that we are going to be looking at um, at this right now. Now, when we talk about wisdom, like earthly speaking, we think about wisdom and knowledge um, and, and this notion of balancing James and Paul. I just want to share with you, I think I've got time. I'm just going to do it real quick. Uh, uh, there, there's a, a thing called a, a, a logical syllogism. Does anyone know what a logical syllogism is? Um, the mathematicians in here would call it algebra. I don't really believe in algebra. I, I've heard that it exists, but it's like some some uh, wizardry or something. So I, I, I tend to think more of a, a logical syllogism. If A equals B and B equals C, then the conclusion is that A equals C, right? That's logical syllogism. You might call it algebra if you want to. If, do your magic, whatever. Um, a, B, B, C, A equals C. Logical syllogism. Um, Paul and James don't need to be balanced, right? Paul is always talking about how we are adopted co-heirs of Christ. We are sons of God. And therefore, Paul always refers to us as brothers. In the epistles that Paul writes, it kind of seems metaphysical. It kind of seems intellectual. It kind of seems theoretical, right? James, James is the physical connection to what Paul is saying. Think about it. Throughout all of James, James refers to you as his brother. Who was James's brother? Jesus. So if James 
if Jesus is James's brother and James calls you his brother, what does that physically make you with Jesus? Brothers, right? I just think that's cool. That just kind of blows my mind. I mean, that's a little piece of knowledge, a little word of knowledge, but just that image of that connection between these two men. They don't need to be balanced out. The writings don't need to be balanced out. In fact, James in this place gives us a physical connection to the Lord Jesus by calling you and calling me his brother when we know who his physical brother really was. He knew what Jesus sounded like. He knew what Jesus smelled like. Like when they're teenagers and maybe wrestling, like that, you know, that intimacy. Like that's what it means to have a brother. And he calls you and he calls me his brother too. I just think that's really cool. Yeah. God, thank you so much for your word. Lord, thank you for uh, your servant James. And, and, and thank you for uh, the knowledge and truth that we have that we are brothers uh, with your son Jesus. Uh, Lord, we, we glorify you, Lord. Um, we look to you today, Lord, for wisdom. Uh, give us wisdom, we pray. Uh, by your spirit, we pray for clarity. Uh, let your word be really clear today, um, regardless of the speaker and regardless of the hearer, Lord. We just pray that, that your word would, um, would stand out, that you would be known today uh, a better, that we would grow as a church and as a body in knowing and loving and serving you as brothers and sisters. Lord, thank you for this time. Lord, we welcome you, your spirit here. Lord, uh, please move among us. Lord, uh, do something new, a, a new thing as we sang and talked about this morning here today. Um, we give you glory and praise and honor through the text, through the word, through the hearing, Lord, through our worship today. Uh, we pray it in the name of Jesus Christ, uh, our Lord, Savior, our brother. Uh, amen. Yeah, so James, um, as I said, is a many-faceted book. And James chapter 1 is sort of the lens by which James views the rest of what he's going to write. So anytime we talk about the first chapter of James, it's really important to take that perspective because in the next four or five chapters of James, we get that face punch. Like, James is really going to bring it. He's really going to bring it. Really important to come back to this first chapter to see the lens through which James was speaking. So that's why we're spending all this time in it. Last week, Jay taught on self-deception, right? Today is wisdom. These are two concepts that are very deeply connected. Um, Let's go to the text. James chapter 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, there it is, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Remember, James is talking to people, and his desire for the church is that they not live fragmented lives. He wants wholeness for the church, wholeness in this place of this house of worship for God. Uh, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flowers fall and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. 
But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away at once, forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed by his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So James talks about, he starts it off right there at the beginning, verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. And wisdom uh, permeates through the rest of this chapter. And everything else that he's speaking in chapter 1, he's coming, wisdom is a core concept that we get into this. And if you're like me, you get to that last verse, you get to verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now, if you're like me, in your upbringing, maybe in your faith, you immediately go to this place. And and Jay talked about it last week, but I still go to this place where I think, okay, what widow am I visiting? What orphan am I caring for? And how am I unstained by the world? And so I go looking for these things that check these blocks that make me good with God, right? Okay, Widow, check. I can visit you. Orphan, check. I can care for you. Um, I got all this stuff in my life. And if I just chuck it out the window, then I'm not unstained by the world anymore, right? But that's self-deception. And so I need wisdom in that place. And we need wisdom in that place to help understand what it is exactly that James is saying. And that's how wisdom permeates through that. We get to that place and we need wisdom. We need wisdom. We need wisdom from God uh, to understand that place, to not be self-deceived, to have a faith that is not worthless, but a faith that is alive, right? And that's why we need wisdom. So what is wisdom? The Bible talks a lot about wisdom. Wisdom is mentioned throughout, from the very start to the very end. Wisdom, again, is a theme throughout the Bible. Wisdom There's books about wisdom. Proverbs, Ecclesiastes is all about wisdom. Uh, Wisdom is one of these things that God desires for his people very, very deeply. Um, Wisdom in in the Bible is referred to as uh, sweeter than honey to the mouth. Uh, Scripture refers to wisdom as a woman that you pursue. Guys, we know what that means, right? Um, Wisdom is a builder of a house. You know, something that gives you shelter and protection. Wisdom is a jewel. It's a treasure. It's more precious than diamonds and rubies. Um, Scripture refers to wisdom as an intimate friend. Uh, It refers to wisdom as a sister. All these beautiful imageries of what wisdom is, right? 
And, and in fact, we have stories of, of people that were wise, that walked in wisdom. And uh, yeah, okay. So th- there's, this, there's this story of Solomon. Solomon, right? Um, who was, Scripture tells us, was the wisest man that ever lived. Right? We have stories of people like Solomon. And, and the one story that people always talk about with Solomon as being wise is when these two women come to him with a baby and they both claim that it's their baby, right? And Solomon, what does he say? This is his wisdom. He says, well, we'll cut the baby in half, right? I mean, this is the wisest guy that ever lived. I'm, I think I must be the only person that thinks that. I go, how is that wisdom, right? That's just crazy. That's crazy. But Solomon was wise. He, he could see things, right? Um, but you look at Solomon as well in his story. And his story is full of, is full of folly as well. And the Bible compares wisdom and folly. These two things that are always in, in, uh, in contest with each other. Wisdom and foolishness. And we see these things interplayed. Wisdom and foolishness. And in James, he brings out this wisdom and foolishness and he ties it in with self-deception, right? So there's, there's wisdom. There's, there's, uh, there's the folly. Simple folly. The stuff that we um, are easy to identify. Like we can identify this stuff easily. There's the folly... Of, of the man that, that wastes all of his wealth and all of his money on frivolous spending or gambling, right? That's simple. We can identify that folly. Proverbs speaks to those things. We can identify the folly of, of the person who destroys their health with food, substances, and abusing things, right? Simple folly like this. Uh, folly of, of the person who destroys his marriage with adultery and pornography. And the Bible speaks very clearly about wisdom stepping into those places in those places to, to remove that folly. And if we don't, then we are, we are victims of that folly. But there's another kind of folly. And this is what James is talking about. It's the folly that comes with self-deception. Now that song that I played, I don't know if anyone was listening to it at all. Um, it was really sweet to see everybody continue to, to fellowship. But that song that I played, did anyone listen to any of the lyrics? This is a beautiful song. Some people were tapping their toes, like clapping like it's a great song. It's my favorite band, right? I love this song. But this song was really, really dark. It was a, it was a, the message of that song was dark. And these guys are singing about me and God. And me and God, I don't need a middleman, right? I found God in a soft woman's hair, a long day's work in a, in a good sitting chair. The ups and downs of a treble clef line, right? Music. This is, Sounds good, right? All these things sound good, but it's folly. Like, it, it is deep folly because it's rooted in self-deception. And this is the folly that James is speaking about when he starts off his book in chapter 1 talking about wisdom. If any of you desires wisdom, and that any of you is rhetorical, it's all of us. If any of us lack wisdom, we should ask, right? He's talking about deep self-deception. And the problem with self-deception and the folly that it produces is that it sounds good. Like, it sounds right. Uh, Proverbs says there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. This is the folly that James is speaking about. And this is the folly that inhabits the church. Like that song that I played, like the problem with it, the reason it is so insidious is because there is an ounce of truth to the things that are said. And when we hear those things, we can deceive ourselves and say that we are right. Like, this way seems right to me. But what we don't realize is that we're walking in folly. Like, we have direct access to God, right? I can find God's presence 
in my wife. There is God's presence in the creation of beautiful music and art. All of these things are true. But the folly that we then walk in, and this inhabits like even, even the American church, even our church, is that we then draw conclusions, insidious conclusions about what it means about me, about what it means about you, and about what it means about God. And James is looking for the church to be a house of worship to God. And it's these things that he's speaking against. So this big, huge concept of wisdom, we're going to boil it down to that, to that piece of wisdom that James is looking for the people to obtain that speaks against those dark, insidious pieces of self-deception that sound so right to us, but say lies and evil and untruth about who we are, about who God is, and about who each other is. And that's what James is about. Remember, James is a second commandment book. Second commandment book. Throughout all of James, references are to you, to all of us, to what the church does and how it interacts with the people within itself and outside of itself. James being a second commandment book, the wisdom that he is drawing us to is wisdom that helps us to see that second commandment, that love your neighbor as you love yourself the way that God would see it. Okay? So that's what we're going to that's what we're going to focus on today and we're going to focus on wisdom as Jesus understood it. Now Jesus when he walked on the earth was a man that walked. Every step he took, everything he taught, every interaction that he had with people was rooted in a real deep wisdom. A deep wisdom that exceeded anything that the people that interacted with him could ever understand. In almost every instance when Jesus interacted with people, they were lost. Like, he's bringing this wisdom. He's got a worldview. He sees himself and he sees the kingdom that he brought in a certain way that's rooted in wisdom that no one else could understand. It confounded, it confounded everybody. Everything that he taught was rooted in this wisdom. From the idea that the meek would inherit the earth, right? That, that the poor owned the kingdom of heaven. That the first would be last, the last would be first. Everything that he taught was rooted in a worldview of wisdom that no one else could grasp at that time. And he moved in that space really well. Better than anyone ever, he walked in wisdom. He was the greatest philosopher that has ever lived. Philosophy, break it down, means the love of wisdom. He was the greatest philosopher that ever lived. He was the greatest teacher that ever lived because of his love of wisdom and his desire for his people to see the kingdom the way that he did. Um, Go to Matthew chapter 11. This is an example of this, just one of the examples. Throughout the Gospels, every chapter of of we read of Jesus' life is an exploration of him engaging wisdom and a deep wisdom. A deep wisdom that that exceeds anything that anyone heard before. And understand that. He's talking to Jewish teachers. He's talking to Jewish Pharisees that understood Scripture. They understood Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and the books of Moses better than anyone. And yet he came with a deeper wisdom that even they couldn't comprehend. This is the wisdom that Jesus um, walked in. This is the wisdom that James is calling us to. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus... um, John the Baptist has just been arrested. He's been arrested. He's in jail. And he is wondering if Jesus really is the Messiah. Remember, John has baptized him and is asking a question. He sends his disciples to talk to Jesus' disciples. Excuse me. 
to talk to Jesus, to find out if he is the Messiah. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word to his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered him, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who has come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. This is Jesus talking in wisdom. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Do you hear James in there? James is echoing that wisdom that Jesus is talking about, that last phrase. Wisdom, wisdom is justified by her deeds. Remember, James is talking about a faith of people that aren't just hearers, but are doers, right? Faith that is alive by what it produces. Jesus is, is taking them through this discussion of this generation and how their, their, their minds cannot conceive and perceive the wisdom that Jesus is walking in, this wisdom that Jesus holds. And, and up at the top, go tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. I think this is where James says in verse 22, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently in his natural face in a mirror. For he looks in a mirror and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So the wisdom that Jesus owns, the wisdom that he walks in, is a wisdom that is known by what it produces. Jesus' faith, his understanding, his worldview of the kingdom was one where wisdom caused caused people to produce something. Uh, That story in Matthew is repeated in Luke. In Luke chapter 7, it's the same story. But there's a different phrase at the end. I think it's a neat phrase. In in Luke, uh, Jesus says, Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Think of it that way. The wisdom that Jesus desires for his people is a wisdom that is justified by its children, by what it produces. And God calls us his what? Children, right? So the wisdom that God sees, the wisdom where his people are producing, 
It's not just a, it's not just a faith that is grounded in knowing who he is, although that's hugely important, but it's a, it's a wisdom that produces something, that generates something, that does something, that, that is more than just the words that we say and is more than just the words that we read, but it's, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a faith that is made alive by what we do. And Jesus says to the people, look what you have seen. Who am I? Tell me what you have seen. What has been produced? What has wisdom produced? The blind see, the deaf hear, the lame walk. The dead are risen from the grave. Like, this is a deep wisdom that Jesus holds. And the, 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 the coolest thing is that the very next story in Luke is the story of a sinful woman who goes and anoints Jesus' feet. In all, of the, in all of the stories of the gospel, this is one story where Jesus comes in contact with somebody that understands and gets his wisdom. This deep wisdom that he holds. Here's a person that understands it the same way. And, and this interaction is amazing. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered, said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which one of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then, he tur- then, he t- then turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. See, Jesus is having an encounter with someone who is moving in the same space that he is, operating on that same level. He has spent all of his time, even his disciples are hearers of the word, but don't grasp who it is that Jesus is. But there's this woman, this sinful woman, who comes to him with the same vision the same worldview of his kingdom and offers it back to him. And this is that deep, deep wisdom. Wisdom that precedes time. In Proverbs 8, the passage that uh, a little after what Tim read, Proverbs 8 talks about a wisdom that was there before time began. This is deep wisdom. C.S. Lewis called it uh, deep magic. This deep magic that was there before time began. Before God created any of the universe, this wisdom existed. It was a wisdom that Jesus took with him when he stepped onto the earth. When he became God incarnate, he walked with this deep wisdom that no one could grasp except a sinful woman who had perfume. And even Jesus' disciples said, this is foolishness, right? It's foolishness. She just wasted three years' pay on your feet. 
total foolishness, but Jesus sees somebody that sees the kingdom the way that he saw the kingdom. And that's with that eye of wisdom. That wisdom is nothing less than what Paul calls in uh, 1 Corinthians. He names it. He says what it is. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debtor of this age? Has not God made foolish the debater of this age? Sorry. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The wisdom that Christ walked with, the deep wisdom, that deep magic that exceeded time, was nothing less than the cross itself. From the beginning of time, God knew that what he was going to do was to sacrifice himself in all of his goodness, in all of his holiness, sacrifice himself for men that he created and loved simply for his own pleasure, because he wanted to do it, because he loved people so much. And this is the wisdom that Jesus walked with on the earth. This is what he grasped that no one else could comprehend. This is what the woman grasped, that, that there was deep, deep, beautiful worship of Jesus there. But there's even something more. It's to say that I, I ultimately, in this place, do not matter because of what the cross is and what the cross is. Now, obviously, she didn't know what the cross was. Jesus hadn't even revealed the cross yet. He hadn't gone to the cross, but he knew it from the beginning of time, that that's what God wanted for his people. That is wisdom. In a word, the cross of Christ is wisdom. That's the wisdom that God desires for his people. That's the wisdom that James is calling the church to in his book. So even in the midst of the place where he is saying, be doers of the word and not hearers only, he's talking about the cross. He's talking about the wisdom that drives us to do that. What is in the cross? In the cross is forgiveness, grace, there's rest, there's healing, there's limitless love that has no conditions whatsoever. There is peace. We are at peace with God because of the cross. That's wisdom. That is wisdom. That's the wisdom that God gave to his people. The wisdom that God inspired his people to give back. Um, you all know what a sit and spin is? Yeah. When I was a kid, I had this sit and spin like a fiberglass disc, right? And, and it's got a wheel that you sit on. And so you sit on the floor and you sit on this thing and you, and you crank this thing around and you spin and you get really dizzy, right? Um, so often, <laughs> our faith, and this is what James is preaching against, our faith becomes a sit and spin where we sit here and we crank around this thing wondering how on earth am I going to be good enough to earn what God has given me? How on earth am I ever going to earn the salvation that Christ gave me through the cross, right? 
and we sit here and we spin it. Or maybe it's just something simple like, I just love God so much, I'm just going to sit on this place, and I'm just going to focus on this, and I'm just going to be here by myself, just thinking about this, just meditating about this, just loving this place that I'm in, right? We got to sit and spin faith, and that's what, that's what James is warning against, right? Once we step aside from that, and we look at the cross the way that God viewed the cross, we can see real wisdom. Salvation, we sang about it today, like we can declare salvation. Whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. You will be saved. That is hope. That's not something we can work for. You cannot be a doer of salvation. You cannot do it because the work was already done. So it makes no sense for us to sit on our sit and spin wondering how we can earn the salvation. How can we get right enough with God that I can earn the cross that he gave me? How can I earn that right there that he gave me freely and he said I don't deserve it? There's no way that we can possibly do that. About to say something maybe a little controversial, but stay with me. Ultimately, salvation, salvation that the cross gives us, it may be the point, but it is not the destination. See, James is talking to a church, us, those people, right, who are so obsessed with finding our way to heaven, working out our salvation with fear and trembling, and forgetting the part that Paul says later, that don't forget that it's God that does the work in you so that you can do greater works, essentially, is what he's saying. Right? Heaven is not the destination. Salvation is the reality. It is something we wear like a uniform. As a citizen of heaven, we wear salvation like a uniform. Right? And yeah, we have to put it on every day. Every day I've got to put that uniform of salvation on once again. And I've got to declare that. I call upon the name of the Lord, I will be saved. Because that is the point of the cross. But it is not the destination. The destination is the kingdom. And Jesus walked in wisdom, seeing a kingdom that no one else could see, inviting us to join that, him on that journey to that destination of the kingdom. Not salvation. Salvation is not the destination. And when we step aside from our sit and spin, and we view, we view this through the eyes of Jesus, we see the cross as Jesus saw the cross, we can see that, right? It's not just about my salvation. It is about something bigger. It's about something broader, about something more meaningful. Do you guys remember... A year or two ago, we went through this exercise. I think Jay did it. I, I think I walked. I, I, I carried this before. feels familiar. But watch your heads. Jesus, or Jay, put this cross right here in our midst, right? And we walked through this exercise of seeing the cross the way that Jesus sees it. We step aside it. Jesus didn't go to the cross to save himself, right? That's a ridiculous notion. He didn't go to the cross to save himself. He went there to save others. This is second commandment, right? Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Wisdom from God, the wisdom, the deep wisdom of the cross, is to see the cross the way that Jesus saw the cross, and not just the way that we tend to see it ourselves, sitting alone, you know, 
working it out, trying to figure out how we can earn it, but to see the cross the way that Jesus did. And when Jesus sees the cross, what he sees is you. And so I can say, I can say, the cross has nothing to do with me. It has to do with you. And you can say the same thing. You can say, the cross has nothing to do with me. Say it. Now look at the person beside you and say, the cross has everything to do with you. And you can say that to the person next to you. And you can say, the cross has everything to do with you. And what happens is that you have now received the cross from every other direction. Right? That's how Jesus sees the cross. Jesus sees you through the cross. So I look at Dennis through the cross. I see Dennis through the cross. And the beauty of this is that I see Dennis, and I see Jason, and I see all these folks, not on a sit and spin. When we come up off of the sit and spin, we see each other. There was, on my playground, there was a merry-go-round, right? That you could all get on. Maybe they don't do them anymore because they're not safe, but... You could, you could get on the merry-go-round and, and you push it. And the, like two of you start running on this merry-go-round. You push it and then you jump on. And you yell like on the playground, hey, come and join us. And the more people that you get on this merry-go-round, the better. The better. That's the image of the kingdom through the cross. Yes, the cross has everything to do with you. But when you view it from God's mind, from the mind of Christ, which is what 1 Corinthians says in the next chapter, we have the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ to see the cross the way that he sees the cross, to see each other in that way. Ultimately, the cross, the the power of the cross is not in the cross itself, right? It's just a piece of wood. And, And the one that Jesus was nailed to was just a piece of wood. But the power of the cross was in the posture that Jesus took when he went there. See, wisdom, the deep, deep wisdom of God, is wisdom that says to each one of us, me individually, I know the value that I have because God put his son on the cross and called me a son. He saved me because of that cross. And he says that I'm a treasure. He says that I am valued. He says that I am worth everything to him, worth even more than the life of his only son. The wisdom of the cross, hearers of the word, that's the word of the cross. Hearers of the cross, the word of the cross, hear that and understand it. But doers of the cross then take that the other step and say, because I see you through the cross, Dennis, I can say that you are prized and you are valuable, and you are, are more precious to God than even the life of his own son. That's what the wisdom of the cross says. And when we do that, when we do that as a church, when we do that as a people, when we jump onto the merry-go-round with everyone else, and we see each other the way that Christ sees us, then we create real beauty out of deep wisdom. We're not just working it out on our own. We're doing it together, right? And in that place, in that place, it might hurt. Like there are two ways to get wisdom, two ways. One is through hard experience. We all have gained wisdom that way. That's why we respect elders. Because, I mean, older people, elders, yes. But the people that are older than us, we respect them because of their hard experience. They have wisdom due to that. 
The other way to get wisdom is to ask God, and he gives it freely. Because we're his kids, he gives it to us. When we start viewing each other through the cross that way, it's going to hurt. There are going to be times when it's going to hurt. If I am in conflict with Paul right now, if I am doing something that is hurting him, if I am doing something that dishonors Paul, but Paul takes the posture of the cross and offers the cross back to me, that is beauty. And if somebody, if everyone around is doing that to Paul and offering him the same thing, that is beauty. Verse 25 of James 1 uh, talks about the law of liberty. And the law of liberty is the posture of the cross. Only Jesus could go to the cross because only Jesus knew that he was a son. Only a son can declare, I can put my rights as a son away. Jesus in his life was never once a victim. He never once in his entire life, even up to the cross, was victimized by anyone. He was always secure in his sonship. He always knew who he was. And he went there as a son. And the law of liberty said that he was free to offer that to us instead. Those guys that wrote that song, a few years later, they wrote some better songs. And, and I think with wisdom, they, they wrote with wisdom. And there's one song where they say, a free is not the right to choose. It's answering what's asked of you. That is the law of liberty. And only sons can walk in the law of liberty because we are secure in who we are. We don't need to assert our salvation. We don't need to assert our rightness. We don't need to be justified by who we are because Christ has already done it. And because Christ has done it, then I can look at Paul through the cross and say, the cross tells me that you are worth everything. And I don't need any rights in this place. I can honor you. I can love you limitlessly without condition. I can offer you forgiveness. I can offer you peace and rest because God says you're worth it. So when we get through James and James starts punching us in the face with these things about about your faith being worthless— because you are hearers and not doers. Or in chapter 2 when he says, faith without works is dead, it's the cross that he's talking about. So when, when we get to that last, that last verse, and, and James says, uh, true religion is, is caring for widows and orphans in their affliction and, and not being uh, tainted by the world. What he's talking about is the cross. Jay said last week, why widows and orphans? Why, why is it widows and orphans that James uses here? Because widows and orphans have experienced the greatest loss of love. Right? The cross says that I as a son and you as a son can go to a widow and an orphan and offer them a posture of sacrifice and grace and forgiveness that they cannot get anywhere else. Think about it with a, with a widow. Who is it that fills in that place for a widow? That place of deep love. Who fulfills that for a widow? A husband. And for an orphan, who provides that? A father. God is the father, and Christ has named himself the bridegroom. And what he is offering to the church is an opportunity 
to explore and tap into a deep wisdom that gives us the opportunity in that place to be those things for other people. That is the wisdom, the deep, deep magic and wisdom of the cross. Right? Um, what, what is not in the cross? There is no shame and there is no guilt in the cross. So when we read these face punches of James, you know, that really hit us in that place where we start to, to, to you know, really feel shame, like I'm not meeting the mark, that's folly. Because that is not what the cross says. The cross does not speak shame and guilt in that place. The cross does contain judgment. There is judgment in the cross. But the cross's judgment is against death and sin. So when James in chapter 2 says faith without works is dead, he is speaking judgment. And it's good. That's good. Because that comes from God. And all good things from above, all good gifts come from God. And God's judgment are always good. So when James says your faith, because it lacks works, is dead, or you're a hearer and not a doer, and therefore your faith is worthless, this is good. That's a gift from God. It's an invitation to seek wisdom that's even deeper than what we currently have right now. To walk away from self-deception. To see each other rightly. And when we do that, when we're on that merry-go-round of seeing each other rightly and seeing each other through the cross, we become a house of worship. Of true worship. Worship like the woman who anointed Jesus' feet. Right? We take that posture and we can become that for each other and a house of worship for God. Uh, James says that God, if you, if you desire wisdom, ask for it, he'll give it freely. If you desire wisdom in any situation, in whatever brokenness you're walking through right now, in relationship that you're in, in every relationship that you're in, if you desire wisdom, seek the cross. And God gives it freely. The death that we feel in our faith, that's not the end. That's not the destination either. Because also in the cross is resurrection. Jesus is in the business of resurrecting that which is dead. He is in the business of doing that because of deep wisdom. The deep wisdom of God that says, you are worth it. You are worth everything. You are worth salvation. You are worth grace. You are worth mercy and forgiveness and peace and rest and healing. You are justified by me. You are sanctified by my blood. And you're glorified and called the Son of God. Amen? It's because God loves us that we can walk in that place as sons with wisdom that comes from the cross. Wisdom is the cross of Christ. That's what he's inviting us to. That's James. That's wisdom. We're going to see it more. We're going to see it throughout. It's exciting stuff. But that's the lens. That's the lens to see it through, right? God, thank you so much uh, for, for the cross. Thank you for... Um, this wisdom that you knew from before time began, that you, a perfect, loving God, uh, would give all of that up because you can, because you own it. You could give it all up for us, Lord. Um, Help us to see uh, each other. Help us to see the cross through the mind of Christ with the eyes that you have, Lord. 
that we can become a house of worship for you, Lord, that we can uh, glorify and honor and respect and uh, forgive and love without limits um, those that need it, Lord, the widow, the orphan, Lord, our brothers, the brothers that you've given us, Lord. We give you thanks. We're so thankful for this, Lord. Thank you for it. Um, And we worship you. Um, We worship the God that saw this through from the very beginning through the blood of Jesus that we could uh, that we could walk in your kingdom and see life and truth the way that you do so Lord we give you praise and honor in your name we pray amen when I think about you know how God loves us I think about being a father myself Um, how many of you who have kids have experienced God's wisdom through being a father or mother I mean it's it's incredible how it happens. About three weeks ago, I'm up in my office at home working, and I hear my kids come inside, and they're in conflict. And, and I hear one of them yell to the other one, um, I'm sick of your crying. Oh, no, I don't want to hear your stupid crying anymore. And my kids will be embarrassed if you say anything else. But, um, and I hear the other one yell, well, I, I just don't want to hear any of your stupid mouth anymore. And, and I thought, oh, here's an opportunity for me to show my kids how much I love them. And I called them each up just to talk to them. And it was about putting sleds away in the shed. Uh, somebody had gotten the sleds out, and they were out, and neither one of them wanted to put them away because of the massive injustice of doing it. When, when the one pulled them out and the other one used them, and, and there was just injustice, and, and, uh, and they needed wisdom. And, and it was one of those moments where God, you know, you're, you're talking, and you realize, where did that come from? <laughs> That's awesome. And I said... I said, to my, I said to my son, I said, um, uh, you know, lo- do you love your sister? Then, then love is to treat her the way she should be treated at all times, even when she hasn't earned it, and even when she doesn't deserve it. And as I'm saying this, I'm, I'm hearing God speak this to me. <laughs> you know, this, this is the wisdom of God. That's the wisdom of the cross. And, and my son gets mad, and I said, what's the matter, buddy? And he said, I feel like you only ever have these conversations with me. <laughs> he didn't know I was going to call his sister up later. But, um, I, you know, again, God speaking through, I said, you know, I'm your father. And it's a big deal to be your father. And it is a big deal to be my son. And, and what I desire of you is to love your sister the way that I love her, Right? That is the wisdom of the cross. Like, even when I don't deserve it, for you to take the posture of the cross and say, I am worth everything that God says I'm worth, that is beauty. That is beauty born of deep wisdom. And for me to do the same for you. That's the wisdom of the cross that Jesus gives us. Spoken you know, as a father to his kids to brothers and sisters of each other. Real, real, physical brothers. It's not just metaphysical, um, because James made that tie for us. So, yeah, for you, Cornerstone, may you experience the deep, deep wisdom and love of God that he embodied on the cross. God, thank you for the cross. Thank you for calling us your children. Thank you for declaring us to be worthy of your love, to be worthy of the sacrifice of your son. 
Lord, may we, as your body, as your children, as, your, as brothers and co-heirs with Christ, Lord, may we see each other and see the world the way that you do, so that your name would be glorified, so that you would be worshipped deeper and deeper and deeper every day. Lord, thank you for this time. Uh, yeah, we worship and glorify you.